So this is the third sermon in our Christmas series. The series, uh, if you haven't been with us, or if you have, by way of reminder, is titled, Do You Hear What I Hear? from uh, the song of that title. And so far, we've done two sermons. The first sermon kind of set up those which would follow. And we looked at Romans chapter 10, and we're talking about ears to hear. We were talking about the fact that uh, the, the Lord has given us the capacity to hear, and that hearing is absolutely essential for us. Uh, Paul in Romans 10 says, faith comes from hearing. And so we need to hear. We've got a command to hear, and then ultimately, uh, hearing is a gift from the Lord. The second sermon in the series then was to look at the substance of kind of what we begin to hear in the Christmas story itself, and that was hear the first words, and we looked especially at the angelic greetings. So the gracious greetings that the angels give uh, to Zechariah and to Mary and then to uh, the shepherds and, of course, the inclusion uh, or the emphasis that comes in each one of them for them to fear not. Today, we are, we're considering this, hear the old words. So last week, hear the first words. This week, hear the old words. And to guide us in that, we're turning, once again, to Luke chapter 1, and in particular, we're going to look at the Benedictus. Now, the Benedictus is the uh, prayer, uh, the song, the prophecy of Zechariah. It's called the Benedictus uh, because in Latin, that first word blessed there is Benedictus, and so that's why and that's how it is known as that. Uh, if you recall the way this story goes from earlier in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah has been rendered mute because he doubted. He doubted the fulfillment of the angelic words that were spoken to him about the fact that he and his wife Elizabeth in their old age would have a son. And as a result, he's, he's rendered mute until the time of John's birth. Now, after the birth of John, after then his tongue was divinely loosed, he employed that loosened tongue with these words that we have set before us this morning. So I'm going to read from 67 to 79 of Luke chapter 1. Hear the word of God. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death 
to guide our feet into the way of peace. Great God in heaven, we pray that you would help us to hear today. We pray that you would help us to hear from you, that as we reflect on this word, as we hear this word of yours proclaimed to us, that we would receive it as such, the good news of the gospel, an old word, a sweet word that is given to us. Be with us and enable exactly that today. We ask it in your name. Amen. In an important sense, Zechariah's song, this song that I have just read for us this morning, is a new song. If you are even remotely familiar with the Psalter, the Psalms in your Bible, you will be aware of the fact that oftentimes there's the command given to sing a new song. And Zechariah's song is a new song. It has a new melody to it, a new arrangement to it, a new uh, organization of the notes and the chords, and it is probably up-tempo if we heard uh, the song actually sung. The song has a different feel to it than songs that have come before it. Prophetic songs in the Old Testament were composed without a sense of when they would be fulfilled, when they would be if you will, finally and ultimately and completely fulfilled by the one of whom they ultimately spoke. Let me just give an example of this. Uh, in, in 2 Samuel 7, right? We spent a ton of time in 2 Samuel 7 recently. And one of the things we recognize is that there was a proximity to that prophecy. In other words, David was going to have a son to reign on his throne, and that son was going to be Solomon. But we also recognize that in, in the words that are there, and David recognized it as well, and Solomon recognized it as well, that there was another fulfillment. There was a greater fulfillment than that which would belong to Solomon himself, but they didn't know when that would happen. It was far off in the future. And Zechariah's song here is a little bit different. It has an immediacy to it. Uh, psalm 37, a psalm that we'll actually read together responsively this evening, has a phrase in it that I've preached on a number of times, both from Psalm 37 and because it's also used in the Gospel of John. But that phrase in the psalm is, in just a little while. In just a little while. And so you can speak prophetically in the Old Testament, in Psalm 37, for example, about in just a little while, but you're not exactly sure what that means. How long is a little while is a question that makes sense coming from the Psalms and is often asked in the Psalms, right? How long? How long is it going to be? Well, here, in just a little while, has become imminent right? There's a future undetermined moment that now has become a present moment, a now moment. Now, to be clear, when Zechariah is writing this song right here, when he's praying, when he's prophesying, he does not yet know. He does not yet know what Christ will do in the entirety of his life. He doesn't even know what his son will do in preparation for the one who is coming in. But he's heard, 
He's heard and he's able to recognize that even if he can't understand everything that they will do at this moment, nevertheless, what he recognizes is they're on the cusp. They're on the cusp of God fulfilling what God had promised. What for a long time was unknown in terms of when it would take place is now being revealed to take place. A new epoch is dawning. And so Zechariah's song is a new song. But at the exact same time that it is a new song, Zechariah's song is a decidedly old song with old lyrics, with old words, with old themes that run throughout it. Uh, periodically, uh, you'll come across or we'll, we'll hear a headline uh, these days of one musical artist suing another musical artist. And, and what, they're, what they're saying is that this person who's just now written this song, produced this song, and this song is getting airtime, is actually stolen my song. Right? The, these, this was the song that I wrote a long time ago. They heard it, they took it, they're selling it as their song. And you get these interesting copyright infringement cases uh, that go on. And some of you are probably familiar uh, with various groups and artists that have been uh, either accused of doing that uh, or uh, they're the one whose material was stolen. Here's, here's a suggestion for you, that the Old Testament writers could have brought a copyright infringement suit against Zechariah and probably against Mary uh, as well in her song, The Magnificat, and I think they probably would have won their case if they'd have brought it, because these words, these tunes are familiar to everybody and they recognize them as such. Mary's song and Zechariah's song are unoriginal. They are a compilation of prophetic greatest hits, of prophetic great expectations that are out there that they stitch together. They seek Zechariah and Mary to explain, to put a voice to, to give thanks for what God has done and is doing in them and for them, and likewise for what God is about to do through them. And as they try and find a form for that, Mary and Zechariah, they don't turn to new words, but they turn to old words. Now we, in contrast, when, when we are trying to explain or simply understand Christmas and what Christmas is all about, we are able to look back. Right? We're able to look back and see how Luke has put the story together for us and understand that's what took place. And we're able to look back not only on the story as it's written in the gospel, but we're able to look back on the entirety of the life of Christ from the birth, the incarnation of Christ, from the conception uh, of Christ, all the way through the, the exaltation of Christ and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. So we can make sense of Christmas by kind of looking at the whole of the life of Christ. They, however, that is to say, in this case, Mary and Zechariah, they interpreted Christmas by going ancient, by going old, by going to the past. They are Jewish. 
They are deeply and they are wonderfully Jewish. And the songs they know, the tunes that they know, the lyrics that run through their minds and their heart and that come forth from their mouths are, in fact, the songs of Zion, the songs of Jerusalem, the songs of Israel. And Zion's citizens were song singers, and they were song writers. When they had a song stuck in their heads, I mean, how often times do we get a song stuck in their heads? When they had a song stuck in their heads, it was one of the songs of Zion that was stuck in their head. They had Psalm 150 stuck in their head and said, I got to sing something else. I got to sing Psalm, one, Psalm 23 because I've got Psalm 150 stuck in my head for so long. They were songwriters. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the Qumran Caves says that David, of course, king of Israel, who was a songwriter and a musician himself, that David wrote more than 4,000 songs. Now, we don't know where all of those songs are. We've got a lot of them, right? 150 of Israel's songs right in the middle of our Bible and plenty others scattered throughout the scripture as well. And of course then Solomon, David's son, Solomon it says in 1 Kings chapter 4, Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. That's a lot of songwriting that uh, Israel did. That's a lot of singing that the people of God did over the course of the years. And people like Mary and like Zechariah knew those songs. They were steeped in the tradition of the faith and of the word and of faithful singing. And so the stories that they told one another and the songs that they sang, the songs that they sang as ballads, ballads that would tell the story of what God had done, they were old words. They were old songs that had come before them from their fathers and even mothers in the faith. And so for them to make sense of their lives, to orient their lives, to, to make sense of the experiences of their lives, whether that experience was something everyday, common, mundane, or whether it was a very exalted experience or a tragedy that they were experiencing in their lives or something like this, something extraordinary, right? This is an extraordinary time for both Zechariah and Mary in their lives. When they wanted to figure out, how do I sing this? What do I say about this? How do I express any of those things? They turned to the old words. The old words then for them oriented them. How should they respond in the present? How should they have hope for the future? It was the old words that they heard together. They tried to do that. They turned to the old words to try to understand who is this child who is coming? Or if we, if we want to include John in this, who are these children that have been promised that are coming into the world? And as they do that, as, as both of them do that, as both of them look back and kind of rehearse songs in their mind to make sense of it, they are practicing a way of understanding not only the word of God, but they're, they're practicing a way of understanding the world itself and themselves that Jesus is going to advocate. Now look at the front of your bulletin here with me for just a moment. 
Two verses are on the front of your bulletin this morning, and they're very familiar. Sorry, two passages. But anyway, they're very familiar passages for us. Jesus in John 5 says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So, so these words, these old words, Jesus is saying, they're about me. If you want to understand the story of me, you go to the old words to understand that story. Same thing, Luke 24, in the resurrection appearance. Then he said to them, that is the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Have you ever had this experience? Uh, I, I have had this a lot, perhaps you have uh, as well, where for many years you've been singing a song. Okay, maybe it's one that you heard as a kid, you heard it on the radio, and you sang along to the song. And at some point, you're singing along to it, and, and this can take place in a couple of ways, but you realize you're singing, and you don't actually know the words. You don't actually know the words of this particular song that you're singing. You're saying something that you thought maybe this is what it was, and you go, I, I know that's not really it. So, Either you've got a new pair of speakers that are really clear so you hear words that you never heard before or you just use your phone and you look up the lyrics real quickly and you have this kind of aha moment. I've been singing this song for sometimes 30, sometimes 40 years, had no idea what it was actually talking about until I took the time to kind of go and look and look at what the lyrics of this thing actually are. And when you do that, all of a sudden it makes sense. And sometimes you're really glad and happy about it and you can't wait to explain it. And other times you're really embarrassed because it was about something that you didn't even realize you were singing uh, at a particular time. Importantly and imperfectly then, I think that's how we understand the the spirit-inspired hearing and then response of Mary and Zechariah as well. Parenthetical comment for a moment. So we sing a lot of old songs, right? We, we, we sing from an old hymn book. I'm sure many of us, or I'm sure all of us, listen to all sorts and all varieties of music. But we sing when we're together from an old songbook much of which are Israel's songs, Zion's songs are in this songbook that we sing from. And we recognize that right now, even we don't recognize all of the verses, for example, that are quoted there. Uh, in our household, sometimes it'll happen, I'll say, yeah, we're singing this particular hymn, it's whatever, Psalm 23, Psalm such and such. And, and the other day, Lauren said to me, sorry, I didn't, I didn't ask you about this, but she said, oh, I didn't even realize it was that song, that psalm that we're actually singing in this one. And, and, and what's going to happen with your kids over the years, God willing, is they're singing things right now that they can't make sense of. They don't know all the words that they're singing, but they're probably reading, they're probably singing along. And at some points along the way, God willing, they'll have aha moments where all of a sudden, the things that they were singing will kind of click into place and make sense, and they will be able to rejoice in the things that they have heard and that are part of their lives as well. Now, let me just show you some examples of this as kind of 
working through the story as a whole here uh, and just reminding us of some things that we have heard before of how this kind of hearing and how this kind of communication with the old words actually works. And, and we can, I think, just begin by illustrating it with the angels, with their proclamation that they make. When Gabriel explains to Zechariah who John will be, he comes to Je Zechariah in the most Jewish of settings there in the temple. And he comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth, of whom we read right away when we get the first description of them, are people who love the old words. They are people who walk in the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. For them, the ancient word was exactly what it is, a living word. And for them, it was, it was life for them to walk in the commandments and statutes of God. And so the words of God, the word of God was part of who they were. And then the angel, when the angel gives the explanation to say this is what is going to take place, the angel uses words from Malachi, from the, from, the, from the book of Malachi, from the last of the prophets to explain to Zechariah what is about to take place with his son. And he connects Malachi with Elijah and says, your son is in this line, Elijah, and then Malachi speaking of that, and now your son as well. It's the old words that the angel Gabriel uses to explain to Zechariah who his son is going to be. And then, of course, when Gabriel speaks to Mary and then the shepherds, he, they speak and he speaks of Jesus by talking about David and about Jacob, the, the throne of David, the house of Jacob. And, of course, then he speaks of the fulfillment of prophetic words speaks of the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. And of course, we're not going to turn there because we've just spent weeks and weeks in 2 Samuel 7. But to say an heir is coming, one who will reign on this eternal throne over this eternal kingdom, uses the words of Isaiah to say a son is given and of the increase of the government and of peace there will be no end. The words of the book of Daniel to say the same thing, that there is a kingdom coming that is an unshakable kingdom and it will have no end. When Mary then hears these new, these first words of greetings, these words that are connected to old promises, she connects them with other old words that she has heard before. In particular, in the Magnificat, and I know we didn't read the Magnificat this morning uh, in an earlier version of your bulletin. I had us reading the Magnificat, but we had read it recently, and I wanted us to read uh, Hannah's song instead, because when Mary gets this announcement from Gabriel, she's trying to figure out, how do I make sense of this? How do I pray Christmas? And the way she decides to pray Christmas is go to her Bible, turn in her Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and pray like Hannah prayed. Pray like this. Pray these words. This is how Hannah prayed. She's your forerunner in the faith, a forerunner in prayer and in expectation, and even in fulfillment to a certain extent. And so Mary takes up Hannah's pattern and prays using many of the same words, the same phrases that now can also be found in the Psalter. The Psalter picked up the words of Hannah's 
prayer as well, and they're in many psalms. But Mary, when she prays, she kind of expands on Hannah's song. Mary's song, at least it seems to me, is a more mercy-full song than Hannah's was because, of course, now mercy is coming into the world. Her, her Mary's song, the Magnificat, concludes with these words. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Say, what is God doing? How do you make sense of Christmas? Helping Israel. Remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary is instantly and immediately trying to interpret the present in light of the past, interpret the new words in light of the old words. Think of it this way. Mary writes the very first Christmas song. She writes the very first Christmas carol, and this is it. This is the first one that is here. It's a new song in light of old songs. It's a new song that just builds on old songs, that collects the pieces of old songs together so that she can sing it fresh now to interpret the coming of her son into the world. And Zechariah does exactly the same. Now, with me for just a moment again, turn in your bulletins to pages 8 and 9. So on pages 8 and 9 of your bulletins, I did a little exercise. It was, it was, it's both for you and for me as well here. Uh, but I laid out the connection between Zechariah's new song, which you'll find on the left-hand side of the column, and the old songs from which he is drawing are in the right-hand column. Now, you can do this with your, uh, your cross-references that are found in your Bible as well, but I just thought I'd put it together in one place so that you could see the connection between these things or consider it uh, on your own. If you will, uh, this would be, if, if I were a lawyer, this would be documentary evidence. This is, this is the copyright infringement evidence. Here's where the songs come from. This is it. This is the old tune, the old lyrics that were used that you are taking up right here. But before, you know, and, and we're not going to look at all of this, I'm not going to go through all of these verses for us this morning. If you'd like to read them uh, on your own, you can, they're there uh, for you. But you can see the principle articulated, and just look at verse 70 for a moment uh, on page 8 there. So verse 70 says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So Zechariah understands what's taken place in his life, not as something new that God is doing, not in the sense that there's originality here in what Zechariah is saying or some kind of creative genius. He's doing the opposite. What he's saying is Christmas is prophecy fulfilled. Or look down then at verse 72. It's going to continue the same theme here. Christmas is a mercy that has been promised that is now being delivered. It's a mercy promised becoming a mercy done. Or Christmas is a holy covenant remembered. That's how you make sense of Christmas. It's a holy covenant that has been remembered or uh, at verse 73. It is a sworn oath. Christmas is a sworn oath that has now been kept.
Now, as I said, I'm not going to look at the details of each verse here. Uh, just illustratively, we'll use the last two verses of Zechariah's hymn in order to see some specificity in this. As, as Zechariah closes his song, he closes uh, with the most familiar of biblical metaphors, of biblical imagery, to try and help us to understand what Christmas is, what it's about, that this child is coming into the world. And 78 and 79 are there because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Well, where's he getting that from? He's getting it from Malachi uh, chapter 4, verse 2. But you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Well, where does he get those ideas? Where did he, where did he think of those things? Well, it might be from Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. But the metaphor of light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, Psalm 107.10, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Isaiah recognizes it. He recognizes it and he interprets it and he understands it by using this metaphor, these words that went through his mind that sang out from him all the time to be able to say, this is what Christmas is about. This is what the coming of this child, my child, to testify to the one who is the light, my child. Well, this is John, John uh, the gospel writer now. John the Baptist isn't the light. He testified to the one who was the light. He prepared the way for the one who was the light who was coming into the world. The richness and the beauty of Christmas for Zechariah and for Mary is found in old words. Now imagine for a moment, imagine this for a moment. Imagine that they, that is Mary and Zechariah, that they didn't know their Bibles that they didn't know the songs of Zion at art. That they were, just, they were just plain old people from the world. They didn't know a thing about any of the prophetic words, any of the covenant that had existed. That all of a sudden, the angel just comes to them with a message and says those things. Now, I suspect it would have been good news, right? Good news. There's good news coming to you. But would it not have been a deeply impoverished good news? Because they wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have known of all of the old words that explained to them what was taking place. Now, perhaps there's a, a point of application for us here. And it's simply to say this, the more you steep yourselves in the old words, in the words of scripture, the more you sing the old songs, the richer you become because of Christ. The Christ of Christmas shines brighter. The more you know the songs of Zion, of the church, the more you lay them up in your heart. Not only will, be, not only will your understanding be deeper, but your joy will be deeper. Your peace will be deeper. Your humility will be deeper. Your sense of wonder and your love 
as well. Each year, uh, I make it a habit, uh, a little tradition in my own life, actually in Lauren's as well, uh, we'll read through uh, A Christmas Carol, Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's not very long. We have a nice, beautiful little copy of it, and we'll pick it up. And as you will recall, the first of the three visiting spirits is the ghost of Christmas past. And as Dickens describes this spirit, he describes his appearance in a way that only Dickens can. But one part of the description of his appearance is that this spirit has a light, a, a jet of light springing from its, its head and kind of illuminating the whole, which to Scrooge, as he looks at the spirit, is of course somewhat unsettling to see this spirit with the light springing, a jet of light coming out of the head. And Scrooge asked the spirit to cover himself with his cap, to which the spirit replies, what, exclaimed the ghost, would you soon put out with worldly hands the light that I give? And the clear message of both the spirit and the light is that Scrooge's welfare, Scrooge's reclamation, and those are the words that Dickens uses in the text, they're not only tied to the present and to the future, but they're tied to the past. He, he can't have those other things without going back, without understanding what has preceded his present and his future. The past will instruct him the old words, of course, which the spirit then shows him. Now, in the story, the spirit shows him Christmas's past in his own life, right? Takes him, takes him back in time into his life and shows him those Christmases that helped to forge who he has become. And I guess there is some value in that. There's some value in remembering Christmas's past and trying to allow those to shape our view of the present and of the future as well. There's a nostalgia, right, that accompanies Christmas. And you look at the Christmases long, long ago and you think about them. In fact, uh, I don't think as a result of this sermon, although perhaps, uh, I spent about an hour, an hour and a half uh, this past Monday evening sitting outside and just reflecting on Christmas's past and on the people who are no longer in our lives, the people who have died, who for whatever reason I could see with crystal clarity in that time. I was having a, uh, a Wendell Berry moment of, of membership with those who have gone before us. Now, listen, all of us know there's a lot of pain that can be associated with that. All Christmases were not great Christmases. All people were not the best people, uh, perhaps, in the world, or we didn't treat them well. But there's some sweetness that happens with it as well. But here's the point, and this is actually where I want to go to. The Christmases of our past are not enough. They're not enough for our welfare, our reclamation, and our celebration of Christmas. For that, we must allow 
the Spirit of God, the author of the words, the author of the old words by which the first Christmas was interpreted and understand, we have to allow that Spirit to take us back to the old words, to take us back into the past, to take us back into the thousands of years when for the history of God's people, there was never a Christmas. There were lots of holidays. There were lots of annual celebrations that the people of God had. None of them were Christmas. That comes. There, there was the hope, right? There was the hope of a son, the hope of an heir. There was the hope of a king. There was a hope of peace. There was a hope of redemption, of deliverance. There was a hope of joy that was out there, a hope of God visiting his people, but it hadn't happened trying to stir up Christmas spirit without the old, old words is like having your music on your stereo with the bass turned completely down. Okay? Go home and do it if you want to. Take your stereo, turn the bass completely off, and listen to the music. You might be able to catch the melody. You might be able to catch the words but it'll be tinny, it'll be shallow, and you'll stop listening real quickly because it doesn't have any depth to it. It doesn't have any richness to it. The old words are the baseline, the baseline that carries the music of Christmas along. When we hear the old words, when we sing the old songs, then the new song of Christ coming, then it resonates with us. It resonates with us then deeper and so much richer in our lives and in our hearts. So, because Mary and Zechariah put them down for us, because the prophetic words are spoken here, the old words. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that. We pray that you would help us to be a people of your word who would love it, who would see that Though it be an ancient word, it is in fact a living and active word because you are the living God. We pray that you would quicken it unto us so that we would hear Jesus, so that we would see Jesus in your word. They testify your words to him. And we give you thanks in his name. Amen.